So this is Boss Talk. I'm Ben, that's Ollie, and we just talk about um, stuff that bosses have to do that's complicated. And Felicia, you actually had a question for Ollie um, following up from last week. You know, it's crazy, Ollie. I don't know if you know this, but after the conversation, there's Ben and I have another conversation about the conversation, and it, we talk <laughs> about it the entire week. And so this morning we were, I told, I'm like, that was interesting when you kind of made that flippant comment about academics. And uh, I remember, Ali, you corrected Ben. You say, wait a minute, I'm an academic. And so <laughs> it got me wondering, and like, in, <laughs> I said to Ben this morning, I'm really curious about Ali's journey from being an academic to becoming a tech boss. So I guess my question is, um, why aren't there more professors or PhDs who are successful CEOs like you? And that was a question that I asked Ben this morning. He says, why don't we just bring it into the clubhouse and talk to Ali about it? Awesome. That's an awesome question, Felicia. Uh, also, I think a lot of startup founders struggle with that too because we have a lot of folks that come out of academia and start companies. Uh, and unfortunately, we don't see a lot of them uh, continuing that journey as the companies grow for some reason. So I have thought about that a lot. And I had a lot of friends who started companies. And uh, unfortunately, sadly, most of them aren't CEOs anymore today. Um, I think the reason is I've reflected a lot on this question, actually. And you know, I had to make up my mind. What do I want to do when I grow up? Do I go back to academia? Do I do this job? And I ultimately landed on, I think the CEO job is the best job in the world. Um, or as a joke, it's the worst job that you'll ever love. Uh, but so, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or as Ben says, you, you sleep like a baby. You wake up every two hours crying. Um, but, uh, the reason is this, so I think in academia, they really teach you, uh, two, three things really, really well, and they're awesome. And I love those things. Uh, the first thing they teach you is to find problems that are really difficult and important. So identifying those problems. So you need to be really good at that. The second thing they teach you is how to actually solve those problems, find the truth and do the research and going really, really deep. Like all the way down um, uh, you know, to the core of it. Uh, and then the third thing they teach you is how to take those solutions or the truth that you found and convince other people that you've got the truth, that this is it. Those three skills I think are really important. I think they're amazing. I still carry them with me every day. They help me make me a better CEO. Uh, in particular, I think the truth seeking nature of research is awesome. Like you're kind of unbiased in some ways. I mean, we all have biases, but in research, they teach you, you know, you get more data. You might change your mind. Um, you know, one day you might have data that says masks don't matter for COVID. The other day you might have data that says masks matter. You don't politicize it. You're just looking for it's unemotional. You're just looking for the facts. Um, so that, I think, is awesome. Um, I think that helps me a lot as I'm trying to understand what's going on in the company or we have problems or we have strategic challenges we're facing in the company. So I think that's really good. The other thing it teaches you, how do you convince other people? The research community turns out to be a really difficult community to convince because they are truth-seeking. So they're assuming everything you're saying is probably wrong and they're trying to find faults in whatever you're saying. So you become really good at how do I make a valid argument that's going to convince this person? And that turns out to be a really useful skill to have if you're doing marketing in particular. So that's awesome. So if this is the case, so everybody should go get a PhD before they become a CEO. Unfortunately, that's not the case because it turns out in academia, you only need to be good at that. So all you need to do is find the research problem, solve it, and then communicate it to other people. That's all you need to be good at. 
And as a boss, it turns out there's a whole slew of other things that are way more important than that. In particular, how do you get a team together? How do you get the team to trust you? How do you lay out the vision that that team believes in? And then how do you define a strategy that actually will help you win and get towards that vision? How do you convince those people to follow that strategy? And how do you make them actually execute on that strategy? A lot of it ends up being about humans and this kind of boss talk stuff that we talk about today. And sadly, I didn't learn any of that in research or in <laughs> academia. So that you have to learn all the way from, from scratch. And I think that's, that was the journey for me. I found it super fascinating. I actually liked that part even more than the academic parts. Uh, but I think it's awesome that re researchers are truth seeking. You know, they're not, they don't have any biases really. I mean, they're trying to really just figure out what is the truth and trying to push the boundary of knowledge. Uh, and I think, you know, the pandemic has shown if ever that that's more important than ever, right? They're now in the forefront and the kind of stuff they've done with the vaccine is like just amazing, remarkable. So, uh, so that's why I kind of pushed back. It's like when, yeah, you know, random academics, you know, it's like th there's a lot of virtue also in academia, but doesn't make you a good CEO or boss, unfortunately. Well, I just, yeah. I also want to add, I admire the fact that because I think on the second show or first show, you mentioned um, part of your company's culture is to be truth seekers. And uh, I just really admire that. Yeah, actually, well, he, this is, he, yeah, go ahead. His, his, all his co-founders also had PhDs in computer science. So that was a help for that cultural thing. That is helpful. Yeah. I mean, there is another thing, which I do think actually is a good bridge over to Bostock which is I think whether you like it or not, most companies are cultures, whether you encode it or not, the culture of whatever, whoever the personality of the CEO happens to be, which is completely consistent with Ben's book also, uh, what you do is uh, who you are. That, I mean, the whole book says, you know, you have to walk the, the talk. Uh, so most companies end up being the culture of the CEO, whether you like it or not. So. It's no surprise that whatever I learned in academia is reflected in databricks. Uh, that's not a big shocking thing. Yeah. Yeah, actually, Ali, you might comment on, because, um, you know, I, I, I would say <laughs> at least, uh, you know, some of your co-founders probably took the truth seeking too far and sought the truth on things that were irrelevant, um, like, I don't know, how the payroll system worked and things like that. So. You might want to just touch on that and, and you know, how much is too much of a good thing? Yeah, it's definitely a great point. So look, the whole, like, I'm going to question everything because, you know, I'm an academic and so, uh, and I'm going to figure everything out and I'm going to question anything you tell me. I'm going to trust to verify it. That doesn't enable you to scale. You need to scale through human beings. So if you need to understand every little thing in the finance department, and become a world-class expert in finance and how payroll works and, you know, AR and PR and all that kind of stuff, then uh, you're slowing everything down. You're also kind of destroying the trust. Uh, and also, if you're hiring experts from outside who are not academics and they don't speak your language, it's very hard to build trust with them when you're questioning stuff that they think is, this is like kiddie stuff. I can't believe you're asking me to explain to you this very basic stuff. Like, let me do my job. There's a reason I'm a CFO for 40 years. Um, so I think that's something a lot of academics might struggle with. Uh, and I'm not referring just to my co-founders. In general, I've seen that pattern, right? The, the typical thing is you have a CEO, uh, tech CEO, who says, why should I pay the sales guys 350K a year? You know, I'm just going to pay them like everyone else, and they'll get a 10% bonus. Uh, it's a recipe for disaster. So you, you can definitely have too much of the good here.
Yeah. I don't know how much yeah, you no see doubt. this, Ben. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally, totally see it a lot. And it, it um, you, you know, it's just kind of a human thing. You, you have a mode that works, um, but being CEO, you have to know when to apply which mode. And, you know, the guys who have trouble and the people who have trouble are, are, are people who try and, you know, kind of run the one thing that makes them feel good in all situations. And that's just deadly um, because people are different situations are different, you know, all, all that kind of thing. Um, yeah. Okay. And ultimately, so you got to build trust okay. with those people and trust them, yeah, and let them do their thing. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. And then, look, different personality types react different to different kinds of inquiries, too. So you got to be careful <laughs> stylistically about, <laughs> you know, what you get in return. Um, okay, yeah. so th th this is a really great question, this next one, because I, and I wish every founder asked me this question. Usually I have to kind of uh, volunteer it, the answer, without them asking the question. But it's a follow-up from the talk actually on A to Z with Greg Reyes. And Greg Reyes, for those of you who didn't hear that, uh, was the CEO of Brocade, you know, built the company to like a $40 billion market cap, then uh, went to jail for stock option accounting uh, issues and uh, was recently pardoned, um, and he came on to kind of talk about things. And uh, the question is, it appears that there is a pattern of legally attacking bosses after they leave uh, office, meaning they're no longer CEO. How can new bosses protect themselves against lawsuits after they depart? Um, and so they, there's a lot to that question, I think. Um, the first thing is your legal protections uh, as it relates to the board really change when you're no longer on the board, no longer CEO, uh, in that the board has a kind of fiduciary responsibility to the company and the shareholders um, that they have to live with. Uh, but when you're gone, you're not part of that duty anymore. And that's... Uh, you know, that's a real kind of loss of all kinds of protections that you have. And so you just have to, you know, particularly if you're innocent, you have to really think about stepping down. And that was kind of one mistake I think Greg made is, you know, they asked him to step down, he stepped down. The other kind of related mistake in that was uh, he asked that he need a personal lawyer and um, his counsel said no. Um, and, he, of course, he went to jail. So, <laughs> that was also bad <laughs> advice. Um, but I, I would say stepping back and more broadly, um, and the reason I wanted to answer this question so badly, you know, as CEO, you have to realize, particularly if you are in a company where you've raised money from outside people, that you now have a lot of people who are potentially out to get you. So um, anybody who owns stock in the company can sue you. Um, and that includes employees if you give them stock options. And, you know, there's regulatory agencies uh, who watch over you, like the SEC and the DO. And so they're looking at every move you make. And the only real protection you've got, or the, or the best protection, I should say, is your board. Um, in that if you have to make a decision that's going to affect these people or is going to be, you know, a question of legal things or, or what have you, if you take it to the board and run it through that process and the board makes a decision, that offers you tremendous protection 
compared to if you make that same decision by yourself. And just, you know, like in the Greg Reyes case, uh, his uh, attorney, um, his, his corporate attorney, Larry Sonsini, recommended that he be a committee of one to approve stock options. And that, well, technically was okay, removed his board protection. So it was no longer the board of directors approving stock options. It was Greg Reyes approving stock options. And that was kind of the key to uh, sending him to jail. So, you know, that's how important it is. And I think, you know, a lot of times I see young CEOs and they're, oh, well, I don't want it to be so formal. I can make this decision without you. I can, you know, give an executive a giant stock option package or I can, um, you know, issue stock options or I can uh, do an M&A deal or I can do these things without consulting the board. Well, you can, <laughs> but you shouldn't if you don't want to potentially go to jail. And that's the, uh, I, I would say that's my biggest advice in protecting yourself is your board's there for a reason. It's there to kind of just show that the decision was made with considerations for the stakeholders. That's awesome. Um, you know, I don't have much to add to this one. I just tell you a story. Um, so yeah. I was head of engineering at Databricks and I think I was supposed to meet you, Ben, the next day. And I kind of knew you're yeah. probably going to offer me the CEO job. Uh -huh. uh, so yeah. I remember <laughs> you, that. you don't know the story. <laughs> yeah, but this is the day before. So I went to my cousin who was the yeah. founder of a company called ZocDoc and he was the CEO of that company. Oh, yeah, thousands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, it was thousands, I didn't yeah, it was thousands of people. Company. Oh, man. Yeah, it was my cousin's company. Yeah. I ended up being a customer of Databricks eventually. But so I called him up and I said, hey, man, what's this? Uh, what's, what, what am I going to do here? What is this job, the CEO job about? Should I take it? Should I not take it? And he told me three things and I still remember them. One is he said, hey, you're going to be head of sales. And I said, what are you talking about, man? And he said, well, it's a sales job. And I said, what do you mean? It's not CEO. And I said, no, trust me, you're selling to the employees, you're selling to uh, the investors, you're selling to the press, you're selling, 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 you're selling to customers, that's what the job is. So that's like one thing that stuck with me. Second thing he said is, hey, there, you should read this one book, uh, which is like the book I read and it changed my life here in this company. So the book was Who uh, by uh, Street and Smart. It's a book on hiring. And he said, I follow mm -hmm. this book uh, you know, to a T. And incidentally, we actually follow that book to a T at Databricks. So it's how we hire. And then uh, the third thing he told me is like, yeah. And then the third thing he told me is like, hey, get a personal lawyer. And I say, yeah, we have all these lawyers in the company. Trust me. He's like, no, 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 you don't get it. Get your own lawyer. <laughs> get your own lawyer, pay him out of your own salary. And that's the most important thing you can do right now. And it's the best advice I'm giving you. Just listen to me. So, so I kind of did that as well. So... Um, you know, because you know, you, you think you go to your legal team, but the legal team is representing the company, and they're not necessarily representing you. And as you expand to, we have 19 offices in 19 different countries. There's like a zillion docusigns that come my way every day that I they say, "Hey, put your signature on this, just on page 19." And you have no <laughs> idea what you're signing. <laughs> so um, yeah, get no your doubt, own lawyer. No doubt. Yeah, no, that's that's great advice. Um, okay, let's let's move to the next question. Uh, this is a great one for you because you, you've lived through this big time. What are the pros and cons of junior engineers at seed stage pre-product market fit? I've heard two different views. Quote, no one regrets hiring people who were too senior in the early days. And quote, you need junior engineers for long-term potential growth and to do work that doesn't make sense for senior engineers. 
Yeah, interesting one. I'm curious what you actually have to say on this one. I mean, I'm yeah. not sure I view the world that way uh, at yeah, all. So I mean, I, I view it that... more. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, look, when you're at the beginning of a company, uh, if you have all guys out of school, um, no matter how good they are, if they've not worked on, there's very different thing on this between a school project or even an open source project and a kind of finished product in production. And it's actually hard to know the differences between those two if you haven't done it. It's one of those things where it's not really yeah. in a book, you know, when is when is the thing finished? And so if you don't have somebody who's really good, who's built products that customers have used and paid money for on that early team, it's going to be a problem. Like there's just a way around that being a problem. So I think you definitely need, um, you know, a good mix of, of senior people early on, I guess would be my, my answer to that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would say the same thing. I would say the question itself, I would kind of question the question. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's like, you you write about this a lot. In fact, you know, before I became CEO, I think I read all your blogs. I just went through all of them <laughs> like many years ago now. Uh, yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's like, do you want to hire people that are startup people or mid-sized company people or big company people? I think that's mm-hmm. kind of more relevant. And I think uh, yeah. I kind of make the distinction between three types of people. And I'm not saying you cannot be all three. But the people that are good at figuring out the zero to one, just figuring out, iterating how something works. Then they're the people that just know how to grow this stuff. Like just do the, what are the processes just to do that, to grow this thing? And then there are the really optimization people that are like optimizing the big company stuff. And you don't want to get the person from the wrong stage or with the wrong kind of mindset into a really early startup. And the, what I tell people that are, you know, applying to Databricks, I usually tell them this, this awkward question. I tell them, hey, do you have, I, you know, I tell them, you haven't been in a startup. And they know, oh, but I was in this big company and the team I was in was kind of like a startup within this, you know, <laughs> yeah, 100,000, you know. I'm like, yeah. I'm like, it's not the same thing, man. It's not the same thing. Yeah, like, yeah. No, it is. Really, trust me, we were exactly, we launched a completely new product that we drove to like $5 billion. Uh, so I usually then tell them, uh, hey, do you have a driver's license? And they say, yeah, where are you going? This is a weird question. And then I say, okay, can you drive a car? And they say, yeah, yeah, well, what's, what's up with this question? And I say, well, are you good at driving a car? And they say, yeah, I'm good at it. And I say, okay, can you build a car with your bare hands from scratch? And that's kind of like when they realize it. So I think there are different mindsets and people for different stages. That's the thing you should watch out for. I don't know, you know, I, I'm not sure it's great to have someone that's super junior in general. Like, you know, they need to be trained. They don't know anything really. I mean, they're hungry and yeah. they can be, they're malleable. But get the right yeah. person for the right stage is what I would say. Yeah, no, I think that's right. It, that's a kind of a, a whole other dimension of it, which, um, and I, I think there's kind of two, a couple parts to it. One is the skills you learn at a big company, particularly as a manager or an executive, are very different than the skills you need to kind of fit the product to the market. Like they're just really different. Yeah. and. And then also there's a big rhythm difference. So, and I didn't realize this till I got acquired by HP. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, when I was at Hewlett Packard, I would get like 300 emails a day from various, you know, I had 7,000 people working for me. I get, you know, tons of emails every day requesting all kinds of weird stuff, you know, 
everybody needed to meet with me in the company. So my, you know, it was just a whole thing to manage the calendar. And a lot of the way, you know, I'd have to think about, you know, my day would be like in any quarter, I can do maybe one, maybe two important new initiatives, but I couldn't even get the organization to do more than that. Um, and then, which was so weird for me because in a startup, particularly in a brand new startup, if you don't have 10 new initiatives a day, like as yeah. an executive, you're not, you know, the whole company is standing still, like nothing is happening. It's just dead. And yeah. so to take somebody who's used to the phone ringing or the email box filling up and put him in that situation, like psychologically, they often cannot adapt. So that's, you know, that's a big part. And then the, the car one is great. You know, we used to call that, you know, okay, you can run a playbook, but can you write the playbook? Cause that's a whole yeah. different exercise. And, yeah. you know, there are, it's a much rarer bird, you know, quite frankly, that can write the playbook. So that's a, that's a great, um, that's a great analogy. And, uh, you know, it turns out that people that are really good at writing playbooks, they don't like just running the playbook. They get bored and want to write the new playbook. Yeah. Uh, right. so there are people for the different phases, <laughs> you know, they're, they're not the rule followers, the rule followers that follow the playbook that someone gives them. They're, you know, they're not the folks that will write a new playbook and the new ones who write a new playbook. They don't want to necessarily just sit there and follow someone else's rules. Yeah. And a lot of times, look, the, the, the people who can run the playbook, but can't write it are better at running the playbook than the person who wrote it themselves. That's you know, true. Cause yeah, that's true. They, they take it like a religion and, and yeah. they really enforce it, which is great. Uh, yeah. Okay, so uh, so this is a another. Th this is a kind of a variation of the question, which is: Can you elaborate more on innovation and in putting junior or senior engineers on new products or new features? What do you think of having more junior engineers doing rough prototyping? Then when it's clear the feature product is successful, bring in the senior engineers to make it good and scalable. Yeah, I don't know what you think about this, but I, I think it's a disaster putting a junior person <laughs> on. Like it's like I agree. the hardest problem is getting product market fit. Who do we give yeah. that job to? The most junior person who's clueless. Uh, I think yeah. that's a very well, bad idea. And people do that all the time. And let me tell you why they do it though. So here's what happens. I see this in companies all the time. You have some product and it's got massive revenue and it's kind of the thing that everybody in the whole company revolves around. So whoever is building that thing is the star of the show. They're the center of the universe, the center of attention. If they're a manager, you know, they have the biggest resume thing. I built this thing, you know, that everybody's heard of. Uh, and then you have this, new thing, which is nothing. It's yeah. absolutely nothing. There's no people on it. There's no nothing. And so. And it might be a bad idea. wants to work on that? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> junior guy. <laughs> yeah. A junior guy, right? Like somebody who wants an opportunity, but it does like that skill of finding the market and that process, which is just a long weird grope in the dark you're you know you're synthesizing so much information about okay product architectures you know what do uh 
you know, what do people want? What are they using the product for? Like, what is the competitive landscape? What's the underlying technology that's the right choice? How is that moving? Um, how long will it last? You know, what's the architecture that on, upon which we can build more things? You've got to synthesize all that and hit the product exactly right. <laughs> you know, that just takes some, hard. some practice. <laughs> Yeah, it's hard. Uh, There's so, another thing, yeah, which is, yeah. yeah, it's not just like, you know, it's all, at Databricks, what I noticed is like the, those people that you're talking about with the resume and the great product, yeah. they're also carrying a lot of water on ex extremely important projects. So it's not yes. like they're just sitting there and have nothing to do. They're like the critical person for your key product. So we certainly can't take that person and put them on this new thing. But yeah, that's, that's exactly that's what I think you should do. Yep. Yeah, right, that's right. exactly what you should sorry. do. And that's exactly what we do. Yeah, that's what we do. Any any new major effort, we put one of the heavy hitters, we move them off of these existing successful projects and we put them on this. In fact, I introduced a process called new product acceptance process, which was mm -hmm. sort of a long doc. But the key thing in it was, if you want to launch something new at Databricks, if it's a new innovation, you better get a really senior engineer on it, what we call L6 or L7 engineer. Right. And there was a huge revolt internally just for that one sentence. And they right, said, look, somebody wants uh, to give up their L6 or L7s. <laughs> well, they also said that the argument was, but we don't have enough of those people. They'll just limit yeah. the number of innovations I could do. And I said, great, don't do yes. them if you don't have anyone senior to do them. I don't want to fund it. Yeah, Go that, hire senior people. That, that's, that point may be the key point because that's how, uh, people always ask me, how does money screw up a company? You know, because yeah. there, there's a thing in Silicon Valley, be careful about raising too much money too fast. And why do we say that? Like, why do people say that? And the reason is when you have too much money, like you have plenty, like no entrepreneur has a small number of ideas. They all have a giant number of ideas. And yeah. the often the constraint on the number of ideas you can pursue, particularly as an early company, is how much money you have, right? And that kind of constrains you to doing the top two. Now, okay, so if you have a lot more money, you might... Because you can't, as an entrepreneur, often distinguish what's better, your second best idea or your eighth best idea. Like, you don't know. Yeah. So you just do all eight. Yeah. Okay, but then you eight L7s. <laughs> and yeah. that means that probably all eight of them are going to fail. You're going to stretch out too thin. You're going to burn up all your cash. And then that's the end of the company. And so that point that you made that you never have you know, a huge number of people that can get a new product off is such an important insight that, you know, so few entrepreneurs understand. By the way, everybody noticed it. So it was a long doc and there was one sentence in it that said the requirement is you have these engineers. And everybody jumped to that sentence and said, wait, this is not acceptable because we don't have these folks. And I was like, okay, go hire them then. That's, you have a different problem. Like, why would I want to fund an effort if you don't have the right people to do it? Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, and it just kind of goes to show that you know, there are no, you know, these tech companies are not machines. They're completely dependent on how many genius people do you have to build something new um, that that people are really going to want. And uh, it's, and let's it's say a core truth. Yeah, you have one or two, right? Most startups that we work with have like one or two. If you're lucky, maybe you have three or four. Even gigantic companies at best, if they kept their best guys or gals, have a few of them. It, it's not like we we're talking hundreds. Yeah. Yeah, I know for sure, for sure. Um, okay, let's let's move on to this next question. It's interesting acquisitions. 
At what stage are rapid growth companies ready to grow through acquisitions? And what are some of the critical things to consider initially when opening up for acquisitions? It's great. Well, why don't you take that first? You see a lot of it in the portfolio. <laughs> yeah, 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 no, I do. Oh boy, well, this is a tricky one. So I, I, I think there's not really a hard and fast rule in some ways, but you know, one thing is like, have you earned the right? Um, and what I mean by that, I used to have, you know, when I was running Opsware, one of the things that pe people wanted, we, we had a very tough competitor called BladeLogic and they're like, Ben, why don't we just buy them? And I'm like, and then it wasn't an easy thing to buy anyway, but I was like, look, at some point, if we don't have a better product and we don't have a better company and we don't win customers, then like, why should we even exist, let alone buy the competition? Yeah. You know, you, you kind of have to be honest with yourself about where you are. Um, and then, you know, I think some companies will, will think of it, they'll raise a lot of money, especially these days. Companies raise a lot of money without really having built, you know, kind of, you have to do your thing with your company first, meaning you've got yeah. to build a great product, you've got to price it correctly, you've got to sell it or, you know, distribute it in volume and get money, you know, kind of get money in a profitable way for it. And then once you've done that, um, then you actually have a company and you've got, you know, kind of working functions where you know you've got a culture, you've got a business. Um, and I think at that point, then you can start to say, okay, is there something that if we added it in our channel, in our product that like that would help us or added people in this way and so forth. But if you don't have that, you're on such a shaky foundation, you're going to run into a lot of trouble. And then I would say the next consideration is you're, you, most companies aren't constrained. You know, again, it's not money that um, should slow your role on acquisitions. It's the cost and complexity of integrating somebody else's company. Because people underestimate whatever you're acquiring, they have a mission, a culture, a reason why everybody joined that company that has nothing to do with you. And so if you're gonna acquire somebody, you've gotta reorient that whole company to your mission, to your culture, to your way of doing things, to your opportunity. And that's an enormous effort. Uh, and so it really better be transformational for you to take your eye off whatever it is you're doing and spend all that time trying to get somebody else's company to like working for your company, every employee. Um, and that's just, you know, it's really, really complicated. Often, you know, these acquisitions, you have duplicate personnel and, you know, whatever finance or HR and so forth. So you have layoffs, which is a big, you know, a difficult thing to do. And, you know, people are upset coming in and all that kind of thing. So they're really hard. Um, it's not like a generalized good growth strategy, I don't think. I think you you have to pick things that, um, are really going to kind of change the game or change the landscape with respect to you and other people who you're trying to compete with. And if it, if it's, if it doesn't do that, then it's probably not worth it, would be my observation. I really like your, this point that you made because I spend a lot of my time looking at the uh, acquisition potentials for Databricks. And uh, we've been super close, as you know, to acquiring quite a few of them. 
And then on the finish, yes. finish line, we always say no. And, uh, and after the fact, when I look at it back and say, yes, totally the right thing to pass on it. And one of the things I learned is exactly the point you made, which is once you get to know the CEO and the founders and what they're doing, you get closer to them. You spend a lot of time scrutinizing them. Yeah. The main thing I've learned is, well, they have a completely different culture. We worked so hard to build this very spe special culture at Databricks uh, that's unique yeah. to us. I spent so much energy uh, communicating to the company, hiring the right people, you know, promoting the people that I think is good for the culture and so on. And then, so for instance, Databricks is super transparent, truth-seeking company. Uh, we're super data-driven. And one of these companies, which awesome product, it was the right revenue, it was the right acquisition for us. But I got to know the founders and I found out, wow, okay, so they're absolutely not transparent. It's a super secretive, paranoid company that doesn't want to share anything internally. <laughs> everything is hush-hush. Uh, they're not data-driven. They feel like everything should be gut decisions and so on. So after a while, you realize, wow, yeah. it's like, I frankly wouldn't hire any of these folks. Um, yeah. So that's the main thing. Like, How do I bring these folks on and keep them here and get them to love our culture and live by our culture? Let alone, like I was just thinking about it, you hire these people in, then they come back and say, okay, this is great. I'm now part of your company. I, I'm going to hire some people to my team in this acquisition. Yeah. You're like, yeah, you have to make sure you hire people that are transparent and so on. They will not like that, right? They will say, hey, no, I mean, that's not, I know how I hire. I already have built the company. I hire, hire like this. And now you have to tell them, yeah. no, but that's the wrong way of hiring here. Uh, it's unacceptable here. I mean, you can just see the amount of clashes that would happen. So uh, I think there's a difference between uh, four tech companies that typically tend to build themselves versus uh, buy shops that in general buy a lot of software. They don't build it themselves. Like there's a difference yeah. between the Fangs, the Ubers. And I think Databricks falls into that category. Those companies, I don't think these acquisitions are don't work that often. Whereas the, the buy shops, this is what they do for a living. I mean, some of them, the big companies, all they do is grow through acquisitions that then do, they do stock swaps on. Yeah, By the no, way, we should maybe have a pointer here, right? You have, we have a show coming up that's going to focus on this. Oh, yeah, yes, actually, right. On, uh, on 420, um, uh, which is uh, weed smoking day, <laughs> um, we're going to have... Uh, <laughs> Todd McKinnon on, who's just made a $6.5 billion acquisition of a company called Osiro. Todd is the CEO of Okta. And they're going to talk about uh, both he and uh, the uh, Osiro CEO are going to come on and, and talk about that and uh, kind of what led to it and why they think it's a good idea and so forth. And so we'll get really, really deep into acquisitions. Um, you actually mentioned a thing that's pretty uh I, I would say important, and it reminds me, you know, just about like, okay, would I hire these people? And uh, it reminds me of the late Ross Perot when he was building EDS. It was very, mm -hmm. he was super focused on culture. And, and you know, for that company, in the early days when they built it, culture was everything. And they, they did quite an amazing job, uh, you know, in the recruiting process. If you If you ever want to kind of learn about like a really, uh, sophisticated recruiting process. You know, read the Citizen Perot. Uh, it's a, it's really fascinating. Um, but you know, one of the things that he said is, you know, I only want to hire one person out of any company we're hiring from because eagles don't flock. <laughs> and you know, kind of, <laughs> which is good. You know, he wanted leaders, um, and he was building yeah. kind of like a high leadership environment. Um, but it was also kind of a thing about, look, I don't want other companies' cultures coming in here. 
Like yeah. this is going to be our culture. And like, if I hire 25 people out of Google, then I'm going to get a Google culture and I want a Google culture. Like that's for them. That's not for me. And, you know, and it really, it was ironic how EDS evolved because he was always worried about, you know, they, they actually ended up buying IT shops from their customers with all the people. And that's the thing that actually I think ended up eroding the culture at um, at EDS. Uh, hmm. But you know, it it's fascinating how like a business need can actually kind of override that concern. But uh, he was ultimately right uh, about the concern and and probably wrong about making the acquisitions. Although that's how they became such a gigantic company. So you know, sometimes you got to do what you got to do. I think that's a great point. The, the the fact that you know there's probably one leader in the company that you're acquiring that you really need to make sure it's a CTO usually or someone like that, uh, or maybe the co-founder who's no longer CEO, or maybe it is the CEO who's not scaling and figure out could that person be a new leader and become sort of a right-hand person for me or be a critical person? And then it's okay that the rest of the company probably will not work out and their products won't work out, but now you it might be worth just getting that phenomenal person into your company because it's just so hard to find great leaders anyway. Oh yeah, well, and as you said, look, sometimes a great L7 is worth it because yeah. they'll go build you another product that might be better than the entire company that you acquired. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, like I, I think that's right. You, you can't get too proud that you don't recognize greatness and do what you have to do to get it into your company. Because, you know, and I see this, you know, people get caught up in, well, I can't, you know, hire that person for that or put them in that position because I have this other person with this much experience and they also went to Stanford and they're making like half that. Um, but that person, I don't care if they went to Stanford, they're not that guy. You know, they're not that yep. that woman. They're not that person who can do that thing that you got to have done. And you have to be able to make exceptions for people who are exceptionally talented. And yep. if you can't do that, you can't really compete in the technology business, I don't think. Yeah, that's a great point. All right. So uh, next question. Um, avoid growing too fast. What are some of the critical common things high growth companies tend to overlook when rapidly scaling into multiple new markets and new product lines? <laughs> like you. That's <laughs> 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 uh, a great question. Um, I mean, look, there's a lot of mistakes you make. One is expanding too fast into too many countries. This is a common thing, right? It's especially if you're chasing revenue, you're saying, if I put two salespeople in that country, they can actually get me a lot of revenue. Yeah, but actually never. putting two salespeople, <laughs> no. yeah. Two salespeople in, in that country really means a team of 20 people in that yes. country. So that's, that's a classic mistake. And actually you put two salespeople there and they do produce some revenue, so you're super happy. But very soon they say, this is awesome, but hey, can we get us, get us a partner person and get us a marketing person and get us a customer success person. We also need an HR person to make sure that we can satisfy the vacation policies and the laws and you know, uh, yeah. pension and whatnot and, in this and, country. And, and, and a yeah. entity. You need a new entity, don't forget that. Yeah, financial entity, yeah. are you gonna do PEO, whatnot? Yeah. You put up PEOs initially because you think it's cheaper, but then in turn out the PEOs actually don't give the same benefits to your employees. So. Very soon you realize every country you entered 
is a 20, 30, 40 person investment. Yeah. So you want to be thoughtful about that upfront and you want to think it through. You don't want to actually, if anyone ever comes to you and says, I think we should go to Japan. Here's my plan for going to Japan. Is it yes or no? Can you approve this? Then that's the wrong question. You know, this is the wrong Definitely. question. The, the question should be, this is our plan. These are the countries I'm going to go to in the next year or two years. Uh, and these are the ones I'm not going to go to. And this is what the investment's going to cost over the next two, three years. Otherwise, it's a one-sided trial where you're just hearing one side of the trial. And, you know, you're saying, well, am I going to approve this or not? Did they make a good case for it? Right. Uh, so it's going to be death by a thousand cuts. Japan? <laughs> you know, yeah. it is a weird feeling, right? It's like, oh, well, of course we want to sell in Japan. Um, well, but, I mean, yeah. those, and yeah. the conversations usually go as this. Here's how big this country's market is. Here's some potential customers there. Here's guaranteed how much revenue I'm going to get. And I'm only asking for two headcounts and nothing more. You know, why would you say no? And here, by the way, here's a person that lives in that country who you who joined recently or, you know, wants to move there. Do you want to tell them no? Yeah. And yeah. you have to yeah, do yeah. Thing about yeah. things. So that, that's definitely yeah. a mistake I think uh, I've made. Um, yeah, yeah. And cloud makes it. this worse. Yeah, cloud makes this worse because, you know, with cloud, you get customers all over the planet immediately without even having anyone in those countries. Yeah. Uh, so I think well, that's, then, uh, that's the thing. So. Who all, and then once you put the people on the ground, they immediately want to deploy in Europe, you know, so that they can deal with um, the data privacy regulations there. And they and you yeah. have, like, it is a thread on a sweater that will unravel yeah. very, very, very fast. Yeah, it's a... Uh, yeah. Do I need to localize the language? No, we just need the documentation to be updated. Okay, we'll update the documentation. But then soon they do need actually that. And soon you need basically a whole startup again. So going to a new country, what I learned is, is basically starting the company all over again. It's the whole thing again yeah. from scratch with a cultural twist and challenge to it. Because when you launch in Japan, Databricks culture in Japan is not going to be identical to Databricks United States, you know, <laughs> East no. Coast culture. Yeah, actually, um, so, Reed, uh, Hastings has a great passage on that in his uh, in his No Rules book about you know <laughs> the Netflix people in Japan didn't quite like the uh, confrontational nature of the direct feedback. <laughs> <laughs> Surprise! Yeah. yeah, yeah, product lines are hard too. I think. I mean, you probably have a lot of insights on that, but I think if especially if your product changes the persona, so you're selling to a different buyer yeah. or a different persona. You end up with channel conflict. You might have a different go-to-market motion that's needed for a separate product. You might you might get various channel conflicts internally with your sales team, sales teams. Yeah. Uh, so that's a really tricky one. And your contracts might not even support the new products properly because you don't have enterprise agreements. You just have a single product contract. That's a mistake I made. So our yeah, contracts no, I... were just for this one product. So then when we rolled out the new product, we're like, well, we have to redo the contract with all of our customers. It's like why? Well, it's like that's the contract talks about this product, not about that product. So then you realize, oh <laughs> shit, I have to come up with an enterprise agreement. Yep, yep, no, definitely. And it's you know the other thing is like a lot of the apparatus of your company isn't necessarily ready for that. So you know if you go back to you know, the international expansion, <clears throat> just supporting people who work in Japan, like you have a marketing organization that's located in San Francisco, and now you've got salespeople in Japan, like 
are they ready to work like that? Is your marketing yeah. team ready to work with those? Or, or, or does Japan have its own marketing team? And then how do you keep those two teams in sync? Like there's all kinds of knock-on effects that start to happen um, when you do it. And then, you know, very similarly with product, as you mentioned, it's like, okay, well, we built this product that's like super cool using our kind of technological advantage, but the buyer isn't the buyer that our channel is selling to. So yeah. do I now need to fucking construct a new channel or am I trying to cross train my reps on selling to somebody else when they already know all the guys, you, you know, all, all the guys they're selling to are all friends. So they can reference through, you know, oh, I sold it to JP Morgan Chase and he knows the guy at Morgan Stanley, but he doesn't know the CFO at Morgan Stanley. He knows the IT guy who bought the, you know, who's his friend. And so now you have another product for the CFO. Well, okay, that's uh, that's a lot of work for me to go do that. And so you, you get into all those kinds of issues. Um, but I would say this, that, uh, you know, there's a great book called, uh, that Jeffrey Moore wrote called Inside the Tornado, which talks about like, sometimes it is best to just, you know, if your product is hot enough to burn the cash, waste the money, go into countries too fast, make the mistakes, because capturing the market is more important than being efficient or having these issues. Yeah, that's a great point. And uh, uh, Reid Hoffman also has a great book on this, right? It's, uh, Blitz yeah. Scaling. Blitz Scaling, uh, right, right. Yeah, where he talks about Which how you, can, you should break the rules. Yeah, yeah and he encourages you to, to, to make those kinds of mistakes um, as well. And I, and I think that's, you know, I think it's generally right, but I think, I think the mistake people make is, um, you know, like, there are avoidable mistakes and then there's, you know, mistakes you make for the wrong reason. You know, you, you want to grow fast, but the market's not pulling you. And yeah. so you try and push it out there too fast. And that, you know, that does tend to be a huge mistake. Um, would you agree? Uh, would you agree that, cause I see this and I, when I see it, I always think they're making a mistake pretty early stage companies. You know, they're not super mature, super far along. And they're on, they're mm -hmm. doing multiple products, three, four, five products. Yeah. Um, and I'm kind of thinking, you know, does that make sense to have so many products so early, and the revenues yes. are low, right? No. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> you, you know, I'll I'll say this about that, and it's kind of what they know how to do, right? Like, so you're good yeah. at building products, um, but you're not good yeah. at getting to product market fit or getting them sold or that kind of thing. I I actually. Started making that mistake. You know, part of it, I, I blame my partner, Mark. So he he was the chairman <laughs> at uh, LoudCloud. And he had so many product ideas, uh, which he thought we should do. Um, and I, it was funny because I was talking to Bill Campbell about, you know, about them because we were kind of trying to build the first the, the first product. And, you know, or, or the first product was selling, but, you know, we were very early on. And I said, well, how should I organize to build these other products. He said, I have a great organizational theory for you. And I go, what? He's like, get one fucking product working, Ben. Like, like <laughs> as in making money and then build the next fucking product. Like, what are you talking about? And I was like, oh shit, yeah. And so that was, <laughs> that was a very good <laughs> lesson for me. Um, and I think that, uh, yeah, people, if you haven't taken one product through the whole process and, you know, sales reps are making their numbers and you're able to grow and customers like it and they're buying more. If that's not already happening, like in a big way, 
then trying to move to a second product is such a crazy dilution of focus that, um, you know, it's almost suicide. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I would say, you know, my rule of thumb internally at Theaterix was get to roughly 100 million revenue. Uh, yeah. That's kind of that, because then you really have the product market fit. You figure out how to scale the thing. You got everything yeah. going. Um, yeah, yeah. So, and then, you know. and then you know, you start to get into new issues. Oh, we need more in the bag. We've got competitors coming that we've got to fend off. There's, you know, guys surrounding us and we've got to, you know, deal with them. And so then, then it does make a lot of sense to expand the product line. But you're right. Like if you don't have, if you can't get, you know, as Peter Thiel says, zero to one, then, yeah. you know, going one to N in kind of markets or products is insane. Uh, and yeah. that's all actually the danger of hiring, you know, too many big executives too fast. Most executives you hire in you know, tend to be experts in going one to N. And so to your point earlier, Ali, can they write the playbook? If you hire non-zero to one executives, if you hire one to N executives before you've gotten to one, yeah. <laughs> then you're going to have a yeah. real problem because they're going to build massive organizations and they're going to destroy the company. Um, and it's going to be your totally. fault, not theirs, because they're doing what you hired them to do. Yeah. Or what they know how to do. Yeah, it's totally true. Yeah. It's, uh, the, the, my friend uh, Egon, who runs Silver Lake, says, has this phrase, horses for courses. <laughs> and, you know, if you bring the wrong yeah. horse for the wrong course, they're still going to run their course. Uh, okay, so uh, here, here's an interesting one. How do you, um, which you, uh, this, is, this is one of your favorite activities. How do you balance reaching on offers for hires or retainments, et cetera, versus maintaining some semblance of internal equity on compensation? Oof, it's a difficult one. Um, yeah, no, this is one of the trickiest things because there's not a clean answer. People yeah. give a clean answer are wrong, I think. Yeah, I mean, look, the way I view it is you need processes for, uh, I've actually done the mistake in both directions on this. Um, if you, if you, let's let's take the one extreme case, which is usually you start your company, and it's probably happened at Databricks. Uh, things are pretty ad hoc. Um, you do whatever offers you have to do to get people signed, um, and the company is doing great. What will happen oftentimes is that you get to a scale in which the number of exceptions and the number of cases where this person is upset about their comp, this person is about to leave, this person is about to do this and that becomes so much that it starts consuming a gigantic part of your time. So a few years back yeah. at Databricks, that was literally the case. Like I was spending a significant portion of my life every week, just talking through what do we do about this comp thing? What do we do about that person? Do we get this? And it's all really difficult trade-offs and it's all sort of you're uh, in a really difficult place with two bad options. Um, mm -hmm. So then you quickly learn that you need a process and you need rules and you need bands and you need some uh, philosophy that you're following, uh, and then yep. you just apply that template uh, to the masses. So that's how I view it. But you shouldn't apply that to everybody. Uh, there's yeah. still should you, should you lose more that L7 engineer who's going to come and build your next amazing product, and they want a ridiculous bonus or a ridiculous equity offer? Should you walk because of that? No, that's stupid. So you just lost your next innovation that's going to change the future of your company. You walked because of that. Uh, so I think there's room for exceptions, 
Uh, I think you can do more exceptions around equity because equity anyway is hard to compare in a company that's growing really fast because you know the company grows, the valuation goes up. So you can, it's anyway not apples to apples. Cash and bonus, you can compare, right? Say, oh, how much is Ben making? How much am I making? But it might be Ben yeah. has you know hundreds of millions of dollars more than me because he joined just two years before me. That's normal mm -hmm. in a high growth startup. Um, yeah. Bonuses are easier to do things around uh, because people usually compare with each other. Uh, they say, you know, what's your, what are you making? They don't ask, oh, you know, I had a one-time bonus or something like that. But generally speaking, this stuff gets out. Uh, you know, oh, some yes. recruiter yeah, is going to screw it up. To, yeah. Yeah, you have to assume every decision you make on compensation is going to be known. Like if you if you think that like your your if your formula is keeping the shit a secret, like that's not going to work. Yeah, my favorite one was uh, I should probably say, too many database employees are listening, but uh, two employees that <laughs> got super pissed off, one in sales yeah. and one in engineering, and they were unhappy about yeah. the comp, and you know, and then they knew all the intricate details of each other's comp, and I said, how the hell is this happening? Say, so, well, they're roommates. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <okay>. so, <laughs> so, you know, I think you should be able to make exceptions. You should get the talent you need to get. Um, and I think one mistake you can make is over-optimizing for uh, just saving money. I think you should go after the talent you should pay up for it if you can. Uh, so at Databricks, we've said we're paying 90th percentile for engineering. Yeah. It's a stated yeah. policy, and we do that. And, uh, and I think it's worth it. And are we overpaying for some folks? We probably are. Uh, but yeah, engineering course, is what's making the company. Yeah, but that's what our secret, you know, our superpower at Databricks is engineering. So we're paying for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, no question. And and look, you, you have to live. So that, that, those are some of the easy things, right? You have to live with the fact that your evaluation of people, particularly at the interview, is going to be highly imperfect because yeah. it's really, you know, the thing that's hardest to gauge when you're interviewing somebody is effort. And so you yeah. can figure out how smart they are, but you can't figure out how productive they're going to be. And so, you know, you have to make adjustments of those, you know, down the line. Um, and then you have to be, if you do one of those things where you go, this guy's an L7 and you overpay him and then he comes in and doesn't perform, you got to be able to deal with that too. Because you can't have, that's a much worse problem. An underperforming person who makes a ton of money um, has got to be dealt with on a performance management standpoint swiftly, uh, because that's going to upset everybody. You know that. Well, there's even a, there's even a rule for that. Yeah. A really awesome blog post I read about this was called "The Law of the Crappiest Person." <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's <laughs> the So Ben wrote a blog on this, and that that blog post has been true at Databricks every day. You know, people always yeah. look at, oh, you know, there's one. There's one person who's all seven, and I found out they make this much, and they're really crappy, and you know I'm better than them. Why am I not making that salary? <laughs> you know, it's funny. That, that, I, I probably received as much criticism for that, you know, for calling people crappy. Like, no person's crappy, you know, that type of thing. I was like, no. But, like, <laughs> the That's my favorite uh, blog post by you. Yeah, yeah, yeah no. Well, CEOs love it because um, they understand what I'm talking about. But, you know, it's uh, – you know, it's a, it's a, you have to run a company <laughs> to appreciate. Yeah. But the other, let's call it the law of least performing person. <laughs> yeah. Right. At, at a level. Um, <laughs> so the other thing that I, I think is worth pointing out is uh, this is why process is so important on raises. Uh, yeah. In that if you, 
if you if somebody asks you for a raise and you say yes ever, um, you're creating a situation because they're getting a raise because they asked for it. And so that means that everybody in your company who's like an introvert or doesn't know to ask for a raise or isn't yeah. comfortable politicking and expects you to evaluate them is getting screwed, no matter how good that person is. So you have to go, look, this is our raise process. We evaluate every employee, every whatever it is, six months. Um, we do it. Everybody gets compared. So you're not looked at in a vacuum. And then, you know, we will uh, give raises to those who deserve them. And like, that's the process. And if we did do it that way, you could get screwed because like somebody else who was worse than you could come ask me for a raise. And because I didn't want to say no, then they get it. And if you don't, if you don't stick to that, um, you, you just have chaos. It's, it's amazing. And, you know, it's frustrating because so many uh, career books advise people to go ask for a raise. <laughs> um, yeah. So you do get a lot of that because everybody's read a career book. It's like, okay, I'm going to lean in. I'm going to ask for a raise that they deserve and not screwing over the people who don't, you know, who aren't pushy. Yeah, there's two things really, right? It's one is you want fairness and equity. Yeah. Uh, and the second thing is you want to right, drive the right behavior. So you want the people that are getting paid uh, to be the right folks. I mean, you mentioned both of them, right? You, if yeah. there is an introverted genius, you want that person to get the race. Uh, yeah, and absolutely. similarly, you want the equity so you don't have a huge uh, issue on your hand where people are unhappy because they're all, the numbers are all over the place. So yeah, that was definitely a big cleanup and sort of um, paradigm shift we had to go through where we put all the process in place. And now it's just all just rule-based. It happens now once a year. It used to happen twice a year. And it's just, you just you could just automate it completely almost. Yeah, the two processes that, like, I don't care how anti-process you are as a startup that you want to put in place early are the hiring process and the raise promotion process. Like, if you have two things that are really sharp and you have outstanding consistency, communication, um, and fairness, those are the ones, definitely. Yeah, (laughs) we believe in, uh, yeah, and we believe in... uh, performance-based raises, right? So that means you basically, the second one is that you mentioned goes hand in hand with performance uh, management. So it's not just about the raise, it's how did you perform? So you got to get those right. And those are difficult, right? They have a lot of culture implications. Super difficult, super difficult and and critically important for sure. All right, Paul, I think we we have... We have come up on the hour. um, And since like we're bosses and we're talking to bosses, we always try and end on time because we know bosses got things to do. So we will see you next week. Uh, thank you, Felicia. Thank you, Fab. Thank you, Jules. Thank you, Dr. Rajiv. Thank you, David, for helping us get the room started. And um, we will see you next week. Yeah, thanks, everyone. Okay, thank you. Take care.